0: It is beautiful weather. It's just beautiful weather, like I said, for October. So, anyway, we're going to, as I said, we started into the Age of Revolution, um, and, and we're going to finish off talking about the American Revolution here again. Want to give us a couple weeks because so many people don't seem to know that much about the beginning of our own country. But before I get going, funky little teaching moment, just so that we're on top of things. Um, since it came up last week, let me clarify something. Cement. Okay, uh, after we talked about it last week, I felt flustered because I'm like, you know, I, I wrote it in there. And I, I, it's one of those things, I, I hadn't followed up on it, so I, I, I just had included the word that I'd seen. I went back, I looked at the book that I'd found that in, I'm like, sure enough, they're like, yeah, the inventions of cement and and, and, as, and rolled off asphalt. I'm like, why would they mention that? Turns out, I did a bunch more research on this. One of the new inventions at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution is a series of new kinds of hydraulic cement, designed to transport, easier designed to set up, easier designed to be uh, to, to be more consistent when you mix it with water-forming concrete, if I'm understanding how that how that works, and then holding up under adverse conditions better. So the actual cement that you used to make concrete was a completely new invention that they had then. The most popular kind of cement that they had was something called Roman cement that was developed by a guy named James Parker, and it was named after, Can kind of make a little marketing nod to the Romans who had invented cement. But this stuff was was a completely different sort of cement. It wasn't made anything like the way the Romans had made their cement. It wasn't made out of any of the same materials. But you call it Roman cement so the people actually buy your product. Ooh, it's, it's the traditional way. It's not even remotely. But anyway, just, just to let people know. So, cement. Anyway, okay, but we're in 1776, A book called The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire got published. Anybody ever hear of the, the, and it's kind of a famous, The the, the Decline and Fall, it's kind of a famous book, it's a famous uh, phrase to talk about the fall of the Roman Empire, and you go, yep, written by a guy named Edward Gibbon, who was a member of Parliament, and not a particularly happy guy. Um, He'd been born in the life of a gentleman, he wasn't a noble, but he was, landed, he had money and things, but he he hated the year he spent at Oxford. uh, 14 months, actually. He spent at Oxford. Didn't have any fun there at all. Uh, He hadn't been able to marry the woman that he loved. One great love of his life, because his dad didn't like her. Um, He'd written several other books, none of which had done anything. So he's a very grumpy person. (laughs) had a very hard life. Apparently, you can be rich and still have a hard life. Go figure. But it took him 10 years to write the first volume and get it published. Spent 10 years of his life pouring into the Roman Empire... Uh, the, the next couple of volumes were published in 1781, volume four, 1784. It took him t- till 1789 to write all six volumes. So 20 years of his life that he'd spent putting this thing together, this mammoth, mammoth work. And it was an immediate success, though that first volume just just sold gangbusters. Very controversial in some parts, but crazy, crazy popular. Part of which is because it was really well researched. He spent 10 years researching the thing. And when I say well-researched, he actually went back to the primary sources. Not, okay, because if you remember, we've talked about this a couple times. Um, Even the best historians these days, at at this time, just pretty pretty much just said what everybody else had said. They quote what Floyd said that Bucky had said, Caesar had said. They tell all sorts of stories that had been told for hundreds of years. History was a flexible, fluid kind of thing. Gibbon said, I'm going to go back to actually like read Caesar's journals. I'm going to go back to Suetonius and read what he's saying. Everything he could to go back and say, well, what did they say was going on at that time? Again, without the internet, without interlibrary loan, this was hard to do. He had to actually do a lot of work to even find the stuff for you to quote. So did he live over there a lot to do it? Uh, well, he traveled a lot, but he also had a lot of people. He, he collected a lot of books in a lot of different ways. It was also really well written. Uh, again, at a time when a lot of historians were extremely dry and it was considered scholarly to be extremely dry, he was actually really, really fun. He wrote very, very well. It was It's a good read. He even got snarky. He loved to, to make little jabs at individuals and things. At one point he called history, quote, little more than the register of the crimes, follies, and misfortune of mankind, unquote. It was just kind of taking jabs even at history itself. So, it was, it was interesting, and he would, he would, he would make personal commentary on what, why he thought things happened in history, so that people could understand why. This is also a little bit more subtle, but part of why it succeeded was a lot of people in England were really drawn to trying to figure out why it is that an empire might crumble. Why might that be at this time in history? For the first time, they have an empire, right? I mean, they've been building this for a while, but after the Seven Years' War, for the first time, they have a sense of empire. All of a sudden, now we own pretty much all of of, of, uh, of India. We own parts of the Far East. We we own parts of the New World. We own parts of of uh, of Africa. We own parts. Uh, we own chunks of Europe. We're and and yes, thank you. Finally, Australia. So it's like we have this empire, and now the, the Americas are trying to break away from our empire. We're struggling in India and things. We have an empire and it's starting to, to kind of crack at, at key points. So when a book comes out that says, you know, the Romans had an empire and it crumbled and here's why. Everybody's like, okay, I want to wrap my head around this. Why does an empire crumble? Like I said, it's controversial too. It's controversial because he Like I said, he came up with his own conclusions as to why things happen. He's like, I'll tell you the main culprit for the fall of Rome and for the descent of Europe into the Dark Ages. By the way, like I said before, I I don't think there was a Dark Ages, right? But I'm not covering that again because I've already covered that. But I don't think there was a Dark Ages. Nevertheless, he knew the main culprit for why Europe descended into the Dark Ages. Anybody want to take a guess? From what we've talked about, from what you understand about Roman history... Who would you say is the main culprit for why? What's the main instigator for why Rome fell? Christianity. <laughs> okay, greed? What else? Anybody else? Inbreeding of, of, of uh, emperors? Bread and circuses. <laughs> the bread and circuses? Okay, Michael, what did you scream from out of the hall? Christianity. Christianity. Given it's very clear, That's the main culprit for the cause uh, of the fall of Rome, was Christianity. He wrote, as Christianity advances, disasters befall the empire. Art, science, literature all decay. Barbarism and all its revolting concomitants are made to seem the consequences of its decisive triumph. When things fall apart, Christianity says, yes, that's God's glory. Christianity is winning because those bad pagan things are falling apart. And the unwary reader is conducted with matchless dexterity to the desired conclusion, as Voltaire had argued, that instead of being merciful, ameliorating, uh, uh, benignant uh, visitation, the religion of Christians would rather seem to be a scourge sent on man by the author of all evil. So, was he claiming that Christianity was not uh, the religion of peace? Uh, Oh, gosh, yes. He would say Christianity is the, is the instigator of everything bad in the world. Again, in our modern day, it's hard to hear somebody say that because nowadays, when you talk to secular historians, they'll all say Christianity was, was beneficent. No, but I mean, this is what he's saying is where religion goes, bad things happen. Religion is the problem. But not just religion, specifically Christianity. That's the worst of them. Everywhere Christianity goes, bad stuff goes down, right? Complete Enlightenment-level thinker. When we talked about the Enlightenment, I mean, it's great. This emphasis on rationality, this emphasis on science and, and learning and things, and that is awesome. But it is also this idea of saying religion is just another superstition. And Christianity is the worst kind of superstition because it is an institutionalized, politicized superstition. You put the witch doctors in charge of the country, that is dangerous is what he's saying. That is basic enlightenment thought. So he said, you know, paganism, I haven't been tolerant of everybody. You want to be a pagan? Fine, you can be a pagan. You can be any kind of flavor of pagan you want. Everything's fine. Because who you believe in, whether it's Odin or Zeus, or, who cares? All that really matters is the faith itself. Faith is is the magic, magic working thing. Not faith in a particular deity, because who knows about that? But the idea that you have some sort of faith that makes you feel good, there, that's fine. Isn't this kind of a modern mindset? I mean, with religion, who cares what religion it is? As long as you have faith, that's the important thing. But then why wouldn't Christianity fit up with that? Because Christianity arrogantly says every other interpretation of Christianity is wrong. Doesn't every other faith say the exact same thing? No, no. They're all tolerant. Why do you ask? Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> is that why Hindus are burning Christians and Muslims? No, 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 no. no. They're fine. They're fine. I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, uh, although Hindu is probably the one that's the most tolerant. Well, and, and I remember talking to somebody about Buddhism one time in college, and they're like, "Buddhism is Buddhism is incredibly tolerant. They they accept everybody." And I'm like, "Right." They would say everybody, as long as you are moving in the same direction, as long as you genuinely feel like God is 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 cool. I mean, the, the Buddhism would say, yeah, Christianity is awesome, I and mean, look, Jesus followed the teachings of the Enlightened Buddha. What if I'm a Buddhist that says everybody other than my Christian version of Buddhism is wrong? Think of, well, then you're not being very Buddhist, are you? So you're doing the same thing! You're tolerant of all the people who are tolerant exactly the way that you're tolerant. Everybody does the same thing. Everybody thinks their version of religion is the right version of religion. I don't even think that necessarily has to be an evil thing. That's just logic. I genuinely think this is the way the world works. Well, or everybody else's thing is right too. Sure, okay, then you don't genuinely think this is the way the world works. If you genuinely think this is the way, if if you're Muslim, if you're Christian, if you're Baptist, if you're Catholic, if you genuinely believe this is the way the world works, then you should think you pretty much have it right but you should always be open-minded that maybe you've got it wrong. Note, it also fails to explain how all those major Roman persecutions were against the Christians by the pagans, right? Remember Domitian? Remember Nero? It was bad! <laughs> the idea that the pagans were the tolerant ones and the Christians were the ones who were, who were hurting people. You go, know, Christians never threw people to the lions. Christians got thrown to the lions. It's telling that in six volumes of Roman history he never mentioned the persecution of Christians. Was that just because of his bias? I would think so. <laughs> I would think so. Six volumes of, of Roman history talked about Domitian, talked about Nero. Yeah, never give up. I didn't have the space in the books. So, tremendously well written, tremendously well received volume became this this like watchword in Europe. Everybody's reading it, and they're all like, yeah, this makes total sense. The Enlightenment, again, keeps moving toward taking this new edge as more and more intellectuals, more and more moralists, move from being religious to being non-religious to being anti-religious. Because remember, the last person that really made a big splash was Voltaire, just being all clever. (laughs) wittily picking at Christianity, and it became kind of faddish to pick on Christianity. Now it's become scholarly to say Christianity is the problem, okay? That's going to come up, especially in about 10 years when we start talking about the French Revolution, where they're going to get rid of all the superstition, they're going to get rid of all that kind of stuff, and and have, have reason, an age of reason, this will be awesome. And so they... Burned churches and had prostitutes have sex on the altars of churches and things so that you could understand that religion is bad and reason is good. Which is why a lot of Americans looked over and went, oh, I don't know that I feel comfortable supporting the French Revolution. They supported us, but I think they're getting a little wacky over there. Of course, something like Tina It's so Is <laughs> a so, good thing or a bad thing? We'll talk about that. <laughs> anyway, but back to everything's complicated. Going back to the whirlwind Revolutionary War timeline. As we're trying to go through the Revolutionary War crazy fast. So we're going to talk about Franklin sitting in France. The French love Ben Franklin. We've got to talk about it. End of 1776. Ben Franklin sent over to France as the United States' first ambassador to France. Technically, they not the first guy they sent over. Sent over a guy named Silas Dean to try to purchase goods so that they could trade with the Indians to try to butter up the Indians. Because when you think about it, The Indians just have been fighting the colonists. I mean, in in the French and Indian War, they fought the colonists. And and the colonists are saying, no, no, you fought England. We we fought on behalf of England, but you were fighting England. And the Indians said, the English looked a lot like you. (laughs) I remember you. You shot at me. No, no, no. I was working for the English now. No, I'm not working for the English. And, and, and the English are wanting you to work for them. But they're the ones who are shooting at you. No, Bob, you were the one who was shooting at me. No, oh, no, 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 I was working for the... Complicated. So they're like, why don't we get some goods so that we can try to schmooze the Indians. Anyway. So Franklin goes over to France as an ambassador, and he's trying to get the French to come over to their side. Why did he think that the French, who had never revolution yet, why did he think the French would actually help? They really hate the English, right? Again, we're on this side of World War II. So we tend to think, tend to think that the French and the English and the Americans all kind of get along, right? We're the, we're the allies and the this these nasty Germans and the Italians and the Axis. Yeah, not yet. Again, as we talked about, America and England didn't get along until like World War I. So it's like, no, yeah, well, the French and the, and the English hated each other. Europe says, you're a rock star. You're awesome. I, like I said you're kind of a reverse beetle you know the invasion of America over into England. He was a famous writer over there. Um, the, the book Poor Richard's Almanac. anybody ever hear of poor Richard's Almanac? Yeah that he had written it was a big hit in France. Everybody loved that thing. Everybody was reading it and quoting it and stuff with all these little aphorisms. He was also a publisher and he was a scientist and he was everything that an enlightenment thinker was supposed to be. He was a deist, but he actually really liked God, so the French were a little confused with that. But he, they loved him. They're like, oh, you're just uh, talk to us. Tell us stuff. Your French is horrible. John Adams has better French eventually than you do. But we still like you better because you're cool and funny and witty. Everybody wanted him. He went to every party, which is exactly what the Americans wanted, right? They're like, you're going to be more than just an ambassador. You're essentially a goodwill ambassador. Every place you go, we want everybody to say, oh, those Americans are so cool. That's what we want. Go to every party. Ingratiate yourself constantly. Even it's fashion sense. Everybody else is wearing wigs. He wears this really nifty fur hat everywhere. And they think that that is so cool. Because <laughs> this is again French fashion. He's a hipster is what he is. <laughs> French fashion, they're like, nobody dresses like him. That's amazing. I mean, it's like where you know, I'm wearing a garbage can on my head. Yes, nobody wears a garbage can on their head. That's just so avant-garde. We even made up the term avant-garde. They loved him. This guys, great. Um, I need to comment on this. Uh, even though he's 70 years old, Franklin is kind of a ladies' man while he's in France. Kind of famous for that sort of thing. Um, and, and it's, it's interesting, because I've read a bunch of different accounts on this. Some people go, no, 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 that's been totally played up. Other people go, no, that's kind of true. Um... <laughs> Famous exchange at court one time. A young woman comes up to a pretty, pretty young woman. Comes up and kind of sits on him and pats his belly. Because that's what you do, right? (laughs) Sits on him and pats his belly and says, Dr. Franklin, if this were on a woman, we'd know what to think. Because he has this big old kind of beer belly. (laughs) To which Franklin replies, half an hour ago, mademoiselle, it was on a woman. Now what do you think? (laughs) Yeah, the ew factor gets a little high on us. So he, 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 yeah, now, I need to say, think of him kind of like James Bond, 70-year-old James Bond with spectacles. (laughs) But he's using this politically. He enjoys hanging out with pretty girls, yeah, especially since he has a common-law wife back in America, but she didn't like to travel, so she didn't travel with him. So he liked being surrounded by pretty girls, go figure. But What's interesting is if you read his writings, if you read his letters and things, he is a very strong moralist, and he's forever talking about the need to have strong ethics, to live out a moral lifestyle, including sexual morality. So you say, why are you debauching yourself, or at least saying that you're debauching yourself in France, flirting with everybody, while telling people you shouldn't debauch yourself? How does that work? Which is why some people go, oh, he never did it. Oh, yes, he did. When it comes down to it, a lot of what he was trying to do was just work within French society. Like, they're constantly flirting with each other, and sleeping with each other, and all this kind of stuff. He's like, then that's what I'll do. I'll be all things to all people, especially the pretty ones, so that we might win some to the American cause. And so everything he's doing is to try to ingratiate himself, especially, particularly sought-out, really wealthy women. So he would write letters back to his common-law wife back in America, and then write letters to one really wealthy woman in particular offering to marry her and saying that he will love only her and, by the way, the Americans really use some money. Again, his whole job over there is to try to get money. While he's over there, he raised, in today's money, $13 billion. He was really good at this. (laughs) Okay? I think the Americans wrote, wait, you made the equivalent of $13 billion? Yeah. And almost all the gunpowder we used came from France? Yeah. Wow. Wear that fur hat. Knock yourself out, <laughs> man. So Franklin was, was, was kicking some serious butt over there in France. By the way, he's also one of the guys who was on the committee to make the great seal of the United States. There was a committee of a, a couple of guys. And even though he's a deist, this is what Franklin supposed, uh, proposed here. If you look at this one, this this backside of it, it's a picture of uh, from Exodus, and it's Pharaoh drowning in the Red Sea while Moses looks on. Pharaoh being King George the Third, and around the edge it says, "Rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God." He's like, "That's what we should put on our great seal. Remind ourselves what we're doing and why we're doing it." So, is that the way the seals in America look? No, because it's a committee decision, right? Actually, it went through like multiple committees. So by the time it was made in 1782, they'd come up with, with a completely different design. Frankly, I really like the eagle one. I think that's an improvement. It's easier to, to see. It looks cooler on a field cap. But um, you also notice the back is very Freemason-friendly because almost everybody who's involved in leadership in the early colonies was a Freemason part of the Masonic Lodge. So they used Masonic Lodge imagery in it. Final decision, by the way. Uh, the, the vinyl design was based on the work of a guy named Francis Hopkinson, the same guy that came up with the design for the American flag. Um, back when he did, he did the six-pointed stars. If Betsy Ross had anything to do with any designs, it was that she picked five-pointed stars because they were easier to cut than a six-pointed star. So, But that was Francis Hopkinson's uh, design. So he was kind of... He's kind of the, the go-to guy for design at the station Game. Okay. Pardon okay. me? Okay. These seals should be familiar to you because you see both sides of them on the back of the dollar bill, right? FDR put them on the back of the dollar bill in 1935. At that time, almost nobody had ever seen this. It was never on anything. But uh, one of FDR's aides ran across it in an old book and said, Wait, is that actually our official seal? Actually, that's kind of cool looking. And so they included it. But when they did, most people were like, what? What's that? I've never seen that before. Oh, well. Now you can just Google it. Yeah? One more thing, and then frankly, that I thought was fascinating. England was really scared of him, almost like he would invented the atomic bomb because electricity, uh-huh. and they thought that he was going to like do something to shock the British, or you know, I mean, it was, yes, they were like, oh, he's going to destroy us. I just thought that was very interesting too. That electricity was this it's really good. freaky thing. James Bond. <laughs> well, I mean, again, <laughs> yeah, electricity, again, electricity is nothing new, but knowing how to manipulate electricity is so new. Um, there's a famous novel that was written. Where somebody—was it? Frankenstein? Frank- 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 because it's like, well, she uses, she wrote that. You know, he used electricity to bring the dead back to life. its, it's unnatural. It's unnatural. You—you you can't harness the power of God using electricity for your own ends. I love it. Every time that a new, every time that a new invention comes out, it becomes sci-fi. You know, like, they invent transistors, and suddenly Iron Man uses transistors in his armor, which means he can do anything, because he has transistors. <laughs> anyway, okay, 1777, uh, the Battle of Princeton, because we got to get back to this, not Iron Man. Uh, remember last week we talked about the Battle of Trenton, when they, when they surprised the Hessians and took all their stuff by, by crossing the Delaware? So Washington has like 6,000, 4,000 to 6,000 troops, they're, they're having a blast. They're like, "Merry Christmas to us!" We did rockingly good. Unfortunately, um, it, it's you don't do anything in a bubble. And and they did so well that Cornwallis sitting over there in New York, they kicked them out of New York, which is why they've been out in the wilderness. Cornwallis is like, "Okay, I got to take you seriously." He has nine thousand well trained British regulars. That he's like, "All right, I'm bringing these guys up against you at Trenton." You have six thousand rabble that actually. Overwhelmed the pretty much drunken Hessians the day after Christmas. Okay, well I'm going to bring my nine thousand regulars and put an end to this. So he, he marches them over, and and Washington is able to hold them off till till sunset. He's like, he, he kept harassing them out in the field and keeping them from doing anything until sunset. So Cornwall has dug in and said, I'm gonna, I'll attack him in the morning. There's nothing they they can do. Actually, he left about twelve hundred men in the city of Princeton. He's like, after we route these guys, it's possible that some of them might try to go back to Princeton and loot Princeton or something. So we need to have what amounts to a small police force there in Princeton, guarding the the provisions and things like that. We don't want these guys to get any more provisions than they've already got. We want. I mean, it's winter time. They've already got Trenton. We don't want them to get anything more. Okay. So tomorrow we're going to attack, which means that tonight. Washington evacuates his position. Because, as I say here, it's been argued that what Washington did best was retreat. He was really, really good at it. And, And I don't mean that in a wimpy sort of way. I mean, he was a genius at not being where the British thought he would be. He kept getting outnumbered, he kept getting overwhelmed, he had no provisions, and he kept winning, or at least not losing. And he wrote, all I have to do is not lose one big battle. If I can keep not losing long enough, and if we can get France in to help us, we'll win because Britain will say it's just not worth it. I don't have to win, I have to win occasionally for morale. I just have to not lose. If I ever lose, if I ever get captured, it's over. But if I keep not losing, so it's like I'm not where they expect me to be. And if you were Washington, where would you go? Princeton! Princeton! It's like there's only 1,200 guys there. I got 6,000 guys, I can take Princeton. So Cornwallis comes to his camp the next morning and goes, where's all the guys? Well, they weren't that close. But what was great was was that Washington, dead at night, dead silent, circled Cornwallis' entire camp to get to the other side of it, because Cornwallis was between him and Princeton. So it never dawned on him that they said, well, and if they try to march on Princeton, we'll, we'll hear them marching on Princeton. No, dead silent. Dead silent takes Princeton, takes all their munitions, all their, all their provisions, and Cornwallis is like, "Ah, uh, nut bunnies! Legend has it, Alexander Hamilton directed the artillery barrage, that much we know. Legend has it that one of the cannonballs actually hit the portrait of King George III in Nassau Hall in Princeton and blew the head off of the portrait. They kept that for a while. Like, going, <laughs> hey, Hamilton did that. Anyway! <laughs> Now the British Cornwallis is like, oh, that's our, I can't take Princeton back. Because now all the fortifications that they that they didn't want the Americans to get any connection with, the Americans are sitting there with 6,000 guys with all the fortifications, all the ammunition in Princeton. And he looks over at Cornwallis and is like, no, you've got like 8,000 guys out in the field. We've got like 6,000 guys behind all the ramparts with all the ammo. You really want to try to take us on? Really? Are you sure you'll win, Cornwallis? Fine, I'll go back to you. So they get Princeton. It's annoying to the British, but not much more than an annoyance. But to the Americans, it's a huge morale victory. They're like, Trenton followed immediately by Princeton? This guy rocks. This is awesome. Leading to the Battle of Saratoga. The British are saying, OK, you know what? All right, forget this whole New England thing, because they're dug in too well in New England. And it's getting too, too stinking cold out here. We're going to go down, and we're going we're gonna to go fight in like, New York. Let's get the Middle Colonies. Those were always the ones that were a little iffy as to whether or not they wanted to rebel in the first place. Let's just go there. Let's let's make a beachhead. We'll split the northern and the southern colonies. This will work. And so, gentleman Johnny Burgoyne, who was famous for how well he dressed and being very natty, like, retook Fort Ticonderoga that we talked about last week. He's like, yep, I'm going to march into New York. I'm going to take it all. This will be great. Washington sent one of his best men. Benedict Arnold! It's like, yep. Isn't that the boot? Pardon me? That's the boot. It's the statue of the boot of the leg? I don't know. Because there's a statue that doesn't say his name on it, but it's oh. to the war here yeah. the, the yeah. yes, that's the leg the got wounded again. Yes, I didn't know what you were going Yes, because <laughs> Benedict Arnold gets wounded in the leg in this, in this battle, and there's a statue that honors his work in this battle, but somehow it's conspicuous in the fact that it doesn't have a name on it. Anyway. <laughs> So Burgoyne lost all the Native Guides. It's a long story. But so he's like, I don't know where the Colonials are. And the Colonials find them first. Hit them flat-footed. And while the American troops are are fighting the British at Saratoga, another group retakes Ticonderoga again. Cutting off all the the British supplies and gathering more men. So just as the day goes on, as this battle goes on, there's more and more Americans flooding into it. And Burgoyne gets overwhelmed. Within a week... The, the British have been pinned down, and they found themselves outnumbered number three to one at Saratoga. Start off, they thought they had the numerical superiority. All of a sudden, they're like three to one. Call back to Ticonderoga for reinforcements. Not buddies. There are no reinforcements, Ticonderoga. Colonials killed or wounded a thousand and captured six thousand British soldiers. Huge victory. This time around, everybody goes, yeah. Huge victory. This is great everybody knows about it. The Continental Congress declares December 18th to be a day of fasting and thanksgiving. The first officially declared Thanksgiving Day. This is Thanksgiving. To give thanks to God for this. And France says okay, you know what? You guys might actually have a chance. Okay, we're going to start helping you. Under the table flagrantly but not officially. We're going to start helping you. We're going to start funneling things towards you. Suddenly England says I've got to fight France, I've got to fight, France is rivaling its sabre in Europe, they're rattling their sabre in West Indies, and I've got to fight America, the stinks. 1777, it's also a year of getting some new recruits. One of the French soldiers who became this passionate proponent of American freedom was a dragoon named Guibert de uh, Mortier. Anybody know what his title is? The Marquis de Lafayette. So if you've ever heard of Lafayette. Another rock star. He heard France is sending over advisors, kind of like we sent advisors to Vietnam. France is going to send advisors <laughs> over there to America. And he's like, ah, I want to go, because he has this passionate heart for freedom. He's like, these guys are fighting for freedom. I'm a noble. And I can still appreciate these guys are fighting for freedom against all odds. This is awesome. But then France goes, yeah, maybe push it. We're not going <laughs> to send over any advisors at all. We'll send over some aid, but no advisors. Dear, dear, dear Lafayette, what do you do? Go anyway. Chartered a ship, paid his own passage with his own money, and he said, I'm going anyway. His brand new father-in-law, who was his commanding officer, ordered him not to go. But he went anyway, because he was this impassioned. He's like, no, this is important. And so he went. Became this hero of the American Revolution, right-hand man to Washington. He was instrumental in different battles. He, he helped eventually, uh, after he got out of Dutch with, with the people in, in, in France, helped build a relationship with France by being this French war hero over in America. Important guy, Lafayette. He was also really good about it, recruiting other soldiers to come help. So like one of the other soldiers that Lafayette recruited was this Polish cavalryman who was on the run from the Russians. Remember him from a couple weeks back? Anybody remember this guy's name? Kazimir Pulaski. He's like, you know, you have nowhere to go. You can't go to Poland because the Russians are in charge. They don't like you. I know where you can go and be a cavalry officer. So he's like, okay, I'm going over there. Pulaski makes an argument to to Washington. He's like, I know you're all about infantry. Let me tell you, light cavalry is the way to go. It worked for Charles Martel. It worked for Charlemagne. The ability to move quickly over long distances and, and and Flex with things. That's what you really want. Change the way that Washington understood how to make use of his troops. In fact, like I said here, arguably, because he had this light cavalry unit and found out information he was able to dodge and weave and then get back to Washington, arguably, you make the this, this statement that he, he saved uh, Washington's life, at Brandy won, the Battle of Brandy won, because he proved if you can move faster than the enemy, you get to win. He was also pardon me? You can retreat better. He's also a bit of a jerk, and it's important to bring this out, is because he was still a nobleman. And unlike Lafayette, he didn't come over because he had a passion for freedom. He came over because he had no place else to go. And so he really struggled. He's like, Why do these American rabble not do everything I tell them to do when I tell them to do it? I don't even need to learn English. They just need to do what I say. I'm I'm a count and they're nothing. Strangely, he did not endear himself to his troops, right? They didn't much care for him. And yet, and yeah, he was instrumental in changing how we did fighting, how we understood the idea of intelligence gathering, etc., even though he was kind of a twerp. Is that why it took 200 years to get tank war? Kind of, yeah, actually. Because there's nothing in Pulaski immediately where you go, War hero! And yet there were a lot of important things that he did, and 200 years later, when... A lot of the Polish people in Chicago said, well, we'd like a holiday. Um, (laughs) They kind of mined history and said, this guy's actually did some really good stuff. (laughs) It's kind of the way it actually did go. Anyway, there's another soldier recruited in 1777 by Ben Franklin. There's a Prussian tactician and drill instructor named Friedrich Wilhelm von Steuben. Again, no great passion for revolution, but he couldn't be uh, a soldier over there in Prussia anymore because he was on charges of homosexuality and nobody wanted him around and he was actually looking towards some serious court martial problems. And Ben Franklin said, Hey, I, it's like it's like an A-Team episode or like the beginning of Charlie's Angels. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just traveling Europe going, I've got a job for you. <laughs> I can't do this anymore. Hmm, well, I've got a job for you. So this great drill instructor who's got no place to go in Europe and no job gets to go over there and be a drill instructor. He was really good at training troops. Crazy good at that. And it's something they desperately needed. They they were kind of a rabble until he came along and trained them how to be an army, how to fight a European army. The first place he started was a place called Valley Forge, where they wintered in 1777 to 1778. You ever hear of Valley Forge. Yeah, not a fun place here. This, this is the winter that they, that they spent at Valley Forge in Pennsylvania, and it was a lot colder than they thought it was going to be. They had no fortified city at this stage to actually go to, so he found the best place he could and just dug in. But the colonial troops weren't they weren't provisioned for it. They, they didn't have enough food. Um, only two-thirds of the men had shoes. They didn't have any blankets. They made some, some, some rough, like, lean-tos and, and cabins and stuff. But they didn't even have mud because it was too cold to put between the slats of the, of the cabins. So over the winter, 2,500 guys died of starvation or exposure. It was horrific. Guys were leaving in droves to go back to their own families. This, ironically, the thing that kept guys there, kept the morale going, was Drilling. Every day, all day long, they got drilled and learned discipline over and over. Nice Prussian discipline over and over and over again. And it actually helped save lives. And it helped save the army because they, they had a sense of, I've got a mission. I'm not just sitting here twiddling my thumbs in the snow dying. I'm focused on all the stuff I need to do and why I need to do it. So you can make an argument that the drill instructors saved the, rev- the revolution here. Anyway, Congress didn't like that, hearing that large chunks of the army was dying. And so they said, Washington, you stink. That's basically what they said. They're not going to do anything like get more provisions or shoes or anything for the Army, but they're going to write him letters saying, you need to do a better job. And he'd write letters back saying, could you do a better job? And they'd say, no, you need to do a better job. Washington wrote in reply, I can assure those gentlemen that it is a much easier and less distressing thing to draw remonstrances in a comfortable room by a good fire than to occupy a cold, bleak hill and sleep under frost and snow without clothes or blankets. However, although they seem to have little feeling for the naked and distressed soldier, I feel superabundantly abundantly for them. And from my soul, pity those miseries, which it is neither in my power to relieve or prevent. It's easy for you guys to sit there in Philadelphia and write me a letter saying you need to do a better job of this. I'm trying. If you can make it warmer out here, that would be great. Or I even send some blankets. Any of the blankets that you have in your home, that you're snuggled up in tonight, we would really appreciate. Are you going to send them? No. Then get off my case. 1778. France finally says, okay, we're going to come in and we're going to actively support America. Ben Franklin's been doing such a great job. We really like him. He's a, just a hoot. And, and Washington has been keeping his army together. We've been reading about that. And Franklin's been telling us about it. So we're going to make our French aid official. We are officially going to support the colonies against England. March 1778, Louis signs the Treaty of Alliance with America, saying, okay, the United States will uphold French land claims in America. Because you remember, at this stage, thanks to the French and Indian War, France has no land in America anymore, right? It's all just Spanish and English. But France no longer has any, not one parcel of land in America. They say, sure you can. Who said you don't have land in America? England? We don't like them anyway. You want land in America? Louisiana is all yours. <laughs> Named after a Louis already. So Louis this, Louis goes, yeah, I like it. So yes, if oh. if the Americans say that French get French land in America, then we will come to America's direct military aid. If they if they ever come, if we ever actually go to war with England at all, you get our full military might. Until that time we'll give you money we'll give you some gunpowder, we'll give you provisions, anything we can do. If we ever go to war with England, then we will be part of your armed forces. You're England, you hear about that, what do you do? Yeah, you declare war on France! Which makes total sense, because you can't make an alliance with the people we're fighting. That puts you at odds with us. Of course, if you're going to war with France, what does that mean? France goes, you split your troops, and France goes, all right, then. The French Navy has officially just become the American Navy. The French Army is now the American Army. It is not just France and America. We are now allies against you. So if you if you run into either French troops or American troops, we're all part of the same army. French Navy or American Navy, we're all part of the same Navy, and we're all fighting you. Not a lot of fun. America invades England. You did know that America invaded England, right? No, Americans. They actually invaded England during the Revolutionary War. Okay. Scottish naval captain, Scottish-born naval captain, John Paul Jones, gets sent to France to try to curry French favor. And he goes, well, and I did that. So now I've got my, my ship, the USS Ranger, over here in France. What do I do now? <laughs> <laughs> England's right over there. I don't technically have any orders about this, but, oh, why not? So he sneaks into the British port of Whitehaven, sets fire to the fort, hundreds of merchant vessels at the port, sets fire to the town itself. He's like, oh, I'm just going to have a lot of fun over here in England. They didn't do quite as much damage as they wanted to do because once his men got ashore, they went to all the pubs. Like, they speak English here! Not that foggy talk. No, I understand these people. Anyway, but it was a huge morale strike. I mean, this really was like Pearl Harbor or 9-11. All of a sudden, the British go, what just happened? They attacked British soil. No way! Up until this point, you might have heard about this over in the newspapers. You've heard about that war over in America. This would be like, what if in the middle of the Vietnam War, the Vietnamese bombed Los Angeles? You go, whoa, this isn't just an evening news thing. This is a we're getting bombed thing. This just got real. And they're terrified. They're just like, well, who knows where he's going to strike next? He sailed the USS Ranger back up to his native Scottish er- areas, and he was going to kidnap a Brit- an English lord named Selkirk, who's lording it over his portion of Scotland, and he's going to ransom him back. God, this is just going to be great. I'm just going to keep doing naughty stuff. Unfortunately, Selkirk wasn't home, so they, they booked him his home. And they're like, ah, nut bunnies. So they stole all of his silver, <laughs> including his wife's tea set, with her morning tea still in it. I love that. I mean, it's not just a little detail. It is such a morale thing. It's like, they'll steal your breakfast. It's like, England's going bonkers. You heard this in the news. The next day, he caught up to the HMS Drake and attacked the Drake. And the commander of the Drake is like, oh, just keep shooting at him. But the ranger was really fast and had a really good hull, And all the cannonballs kept bouncing off the hull. Jones says, aim for the masks. Forget the hull. If you take out the propulsion, we win. So he did. Took it out, splintered the, 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 the mass of the, of the drake, disabled the vessel, and then he took the drake as a prize. It's like, this is now an American ship. I have two ships now. <laughs> wow. England hates this guy. They're like, this guy's like some kind of sorrow bandit on the sea. <laughs> American fans are like, oh, I love this guy. You know, They're writing articles in the newspaper about him. Oh, this is great. Same year, Sp- Spain says, okay, we'll support America. Again, we, we didn't end up real well with the French and Indian War, and we kind of hate England, too. So when France says, would you like to do an alliance against England with us, they said, sure. Now, I'm not actually going to support them directly. I can't support America because Carlos says, ah, it sets a bad precedent for an empire to support empire topplers. So I don't think I'm going to do that. But I'm perfectly fine with supporting France and France is helping America and we're declaring war on England which means that technically tacitly we could help support the Americans what with them being our allies against England but we're not supporting revolutionaries by golly, we're not doing that they made this official the next year where Spain agreed to help France and thus America and in return France uh, is going to help them get back Gibraltar which the English had taken and Florida, which the English had taken, and Minorca, this, this little island over here, which somehow the England had gotten after the French and Indian War. After the Seven Years' War, they got all sorts of scattered territory, different places. And Spain's like, that just gulls us. Yes, we will help you. So England is now facing war against three different nations on multiple fronts, and we got no allies at all. It's starting to get annoying. And if you remember, nobody in England, or nobody in Europe liked England. After the Seven Years' War, everybody's like, well, you're the only people that actually improved your situation after the Seven Years' War. Nobody likes you. Nobody likes the guy who's winning in diplomacy. Nobody likes the guy who's winning in risk. 1779. Got to talk about Benedict Arnold again, because he's great, right? So we're here. Not the best people person. He's been really good. He's really good on the battlefield. Out the battlefield, not so much. Washington likes him, but Arnold kept torquing off his fellow officers. He kept um, dismissing, disregarding, disrespecting everybody else. It's like, well, nobody's as good at this as I am. But you're good. You're not that good. Oh, I'm amazing. You're not that good. And even if you were, you got to work with these people. No, no, I'm amazing. He also tended to get himself on the wrong side of political fights. He would pick the wrong pony. Uh, people would say, oh, you know, these, these two guys are chafing, and he'd say, well, this guy's obviously the one who's right. Well, he lost. So you're a doofus. And he kept doing that. He also had bad post-battlefield luck. Um, he would do well on the battlefield, but then, like, like up, in, up, in, up in New York, they, they do a great campaign, moving up to, to uh, Montreal. And oh, we'll take Montreal. And then over the span of several months, lose a lot of guys, lose Montreal, and have to back up. And you say, that wasn't his fault but he got wrapped up in the bad press of that. As you said, he got wounded in the leg at Saratoga. So, like, the greatest morale boost battle of the war so far, and he was laid up in hospital afterwards. He he wasn't associated with any of that. He kept, unfortunately, not being able to bask in any of his successes, and he kept, unfortunately, getting stuck with all the blame for all the things that wasn't really his fault. Bad luck. Bad luck. But you can see why he kept getting passed over for promotion. He would get promotions, but not the ones he really, really wanted. So as he got older, he got frustrated. It's been said that one of the most corrosive assets in the world is resentment. And he resented where he was at. He's like, yes, I'm, I'm a major. Yes, I'm a lieutenant colonel. Yes, I'm a colonel. But I'm just, wow, guys who are dumber than me are getting generalships. I should be getting that. And he's hobbling from his injuries at Saratoga. So so they said, well, you can't really do battlefield commands anymore, but there's other things I'm sure that we can do. He ended up getting court-martialed at one point because they are like, you know, you can't account for all of the funds that you've been given, and uh, you keep talking to people that are very pro-English. Are you doing something naughty? He got exonerated, mostly. Um, So he, he wasn't thrown out of the military, but still. Washington, even Washington's like, Benedict, get your act straight, right? I'm going to bat for you, and I'm getting a little uncomfortable with some of the stuff you're doing. Washington says, tell you what, though. I'm going to get you a a posting at West Point. This is a nice fort. It's a cushy job. You get to live in the city. um, And and it's a nice stepping stone. Get your leg healed. Don't worry about it. But it took a little bit more time. Pardon me? He got, he, he, he got the, the, you mean, the, uh... He was already including the Britain, and he was lying to him as a and asked for Yes, so he could give it to Britain. Actually, that's a longish process, but yes, he had been talking to Britain about some of the stuff before, and yes, when Washington got him the post, and Washington's the one who went to bat for him to get that, um, he, there's a reason why he wanted that post, but it took a while to do. There was some red tape that went along with it, and personnel issues. And so Arnold's like, okay, so Washington's not there. He's just He's just lying like everybody else has lied. So now I'm officially going to call the British and say, what do you want from me? And his wife was very, very, very instrumental in that. Yeah, his wife saw herself as English and getting saddled here in America. And had already made friends with Brits. And, and yeah. in particular, a guy named Major John Andre, who... Uh, officially offered, he, he officially offered to betray West Point if he got the position, to betray West Point to him for twenty thousand pounds and a British commission. It's like, if you give me twenty thousand pounds and I get to be like a brig- brigadier general, I get to do that. So, um, before he could officially turn West Point over, but he was in the process of trying, uh, Andre was captured. The whole point, the whole plot was uncovered, and Arnold, seriously bad situation. But Arnold finds out about it before he can get arrested and he flees to New York because New York is in British hands, right? Where he accepts a commission in the British Army. And this is the thing. When we think about Benedict Arnold, a lot of times we go, oh, he, he sold out to the British. The reason he was so roundly hated is not just because he was willing to betray West Point to the British and things, but because he had been a war hero in America and became a leader in the British Army against America. He wore a red coat against us. He led the invasion of of Virginia, capturing Richmond. Benedict Arnold, who, like a couple months before, had been still seen as a tainted war hero in America. He was instrumental in the burning of New London, Connecticut. Over and over again, Americans were losing and they heard that the reason that they were losing is because a new Brigadier General on the British side, Benedict Arnold, was helping the British does not go over good with that. Interestingly, two of the people he faced in battle were Lafayette and from Doye, so it's kind of interesting. Anyway, but none of the British commanders really liked him, so they're like, "You turned on your commanders. We can't trust you. What if the what if the wind turns south again instead of north? What? How many pounds could the Americans pay you to turn against us? You, you're untrustworthy. You have no honor at all. You're you win in the field. We'll use you, but we don't like you." We don't trust you. So eventually he's like, Okay, can I go to England? Let me consult with the crowd. Let me consult with people at court. I will tell them how to beat America. That's what I will do. I will help the British like that. And so he we went to England where he was treated like a pariah. They're like, We don't like you. We heard about you. You have no loyalty, you have no honor. Why do we why would we trust you? Yeah that John Andre died in his place, Yeah. That's yeah. a little bit of a... Well and and as I said here he when he arrived in, in, in London, he's, he's like, okay, I've been talking to Tories, the British loyalists over in America, I've gotten really good with that, and so in England, I'm going to align myself with the Tories, because those are the guys that want to fight here in America, and you know, you know, they're kind of out of popularity by the time you arrive in England. Um, by the time you get here and start saying, I'm a Tory, the Whigs are in charge, and the Whigs are saying, you know, I don't want to be involved in a foreign war, I don't want to just be involved, we've got enough other things we're fighting, do we really want to be over there? And so he's like, oh, I'm a Tory! And he goes, yeah, this isn't a good time to be a Tory. Again, pick the wrong side. 1779, we're back to John Paul Jones, because he's still bouncing around England having fun. But at the same time, the French Navy outfits John Paul Jones with a new ship, the Bonhomme Richard, named after Ben Franklin. How is Bonhomme Richard named after Ben Franklin? Poor Richard Almanac! Had been a huge hit in France, and it had been published there as the Maximes did Bon richard yeah, This is, they love it. They're like, oh, it's, it's the Ben Franklin Buck. Yeah, call it the USS Ben Franklin Buck. <laughs> Which is much larger. Had twice the firepower of the Ranger. Being Americans, they refer to it as the Bon Ham Richard. <laughs> <laughs> Deal. Anyway, so he sailed the Richard and four other ships over to England, and he whipped around Scotland. He's like, everybody expects him to go across the Channel. He's like, nope, going over to the North Sea. Nobody in England had any idea where he was. They just knew that there was a flotilla of Jan- John Paul Jones ships heading for England. <laughs> everybody in England, everybody in coastal England was going, I here. <laughs> uh-huh. So he ran into uh, off the coast of Yorkshire the HMS Serapis and her own squadron, and the Serapis, as big as the Richard was, Serapis outgunned her, and. And and, and he's like, but he's still far. But instead of doing a gun battle, he's like, let's try to lash the ships together. If we're stuck next to her, she can't shoot us. And so it just becomes a deck battle. And I think we can beat him hand to hand. What's fun is the British captain says, are you trying to surrender? Is this your attempt to surrender? And Jones replied very famously, I have not yet begun to fight. Surrender? I haven't even started yet. Famously. I don't know if he actually said it, but he said something like that. Anyway. So, in the battle, the Richard was sunk, tons of people died, but at the end, the Serapis was taken as a prize and sailed to the Dutch Republic, because it was neutral, and so he's like, yes, I can go to this neutral port, and the English said, aha, wait, you sailed to a neutral port, and you didn't have an ensign, you didn't have a flag, you took down the British flag, and your flag sunk with your ship, so you have no flag, so that makes you a pirate, and Dutch Republic, you are harboring a pirate. International law says you should turn them over to us. So we slapped together the ugliest flag I've ever seen. <laughs> if you thought the Hopkins flag was bad, this could have... No, this had no chance of being our flag. But this is John Paul Jones' flag that makes no sense to me at all. Anyway, 1780. Let's talk about the Dutch. British are starting to get desperate. They're like, we're, we don't like what we're doing. We don't like that we're kind of losing some things. And they began stopping any shipping going toward the Americas, or toward France, or toward Spain. Like, anything like that, we're going to stop and look for contraband. Are you supporting our enemies? So New Year's Eve, 1779, they stopped a, a squadron of Dutch ships off the Isle of Wight, and they said, we need to see your cargo. And the captain said, no, and they said, yes. And they started firing at each other, and it got ugly, and hostilities raged. And to defend themselves, the very frustrated Dutch Republic says, we don't have the Navy that Britain does, so we're going to join Catherine the Great's new League of Armed Neutrality. Remember when we talked about this several months ago? Or several months ago, Several weeks ago? Catherine the Great has come up with this, this League of Nations. They say, um, if you are not at war with anybody, then what you can do is join us, and all of us neutral countries will defend you against anybody who is at war with other people. Okay? So you're England, what do you do? You declare war on the Dutch Republic. Because now they can't go to the League of Armed Neutrality anymore, right? They're not neutral, because they're at war. You can totally take the Dutch. They're they're nothing compared to Spain and France and stuff. But now, Catherine the Great and all the other, and the Prussians and everything, they can't support her. So the Dutch are like, poor Dutch, poor Dutch status holder, Willem V, the Prince of Orange, but who did what now? You attacked our ships because you thought we had contraband, and then declared war on us. What did we do? We didn't do anything! You guys are nuts! England is now fighting against four nations on four different continents. They're spreading out kind of thin because they have no allies. There's a reason why we, as a nation, were able to win against the strongest military power in the world at that time. England had one of the strongest armies, Prussia was probably stronger. They had the strongest navy going. How did we win? We won because we were on the other side of, a, of, a, uh, of an ocean. We won because we had a continent to go hide in. We also won because they're also trying to fight France and Spain and, and the Dutch Republic. All over the place, and the Dutch Republic is like, well, we're small, but we can make a noise. And most of our colonies are sitting right next to British colonies. So, mm, go, How would you summarize? I, and I know that we've only barely talked about some churchy things here today, but how would you summarize the, the world situation going on here? What's how would you, if you were sitting there in the colonies, what is thing, what do things look like? Why? Yes, you do. Why? Why would you? Why would you guys say you've got a good chance? Because I can't keep sending all our terms out to us. Mm-hmm. Again, we're back to Washington, going. We just have to not lose for an extended period of time. People Other people like us, or at least don't like the people we don't like. From a from a Christian perspective, what's your take on what's going on here? Yes, that is huge. Everybody in America is going. God is obviously watching over us. God is with us. Everybody involved in, in the writing of the Constitution, all this kind of stuff, they're all Christians or deists, And you know, they're they're all saying, Oh, let's have a day of prayer and thanksgiving that God is with us. God is watching over us. Everything about the beginning of our country was all about clearly, we are uniquely blessed by God with the decline and fall of the Roman Empire and anti-Christianity in Europe with the Enlightenment so strong, it also would make us feel a bit like, well, we're the ones that... Yes! Because America's got this God is with us, we're on God's side, we're the new Israel. fact, This is about where people start writing that stuff. It's like, ah, we're like the new Israel. God is clearly blessing us as the new people of God. Especially since Europe is obviously falling into moral decay. Why, look at them over there. So while Europe is sitting there saying, ah, Christianity brings about moral decay and empire falling, America says, ah, obviously, the denouncing of Christianity brings about moral decay and empire falling. So there's this increasing gulf, literally, physically, but also moralistically, philosophically, between America and Europe, where America, Europe is increasingly going to find themselves saying, Christianity bad. Let's marginalize this. And America is going to increasingly be saying, Christianity crucially important. Let's institutionalize this. Because as you know, if you just institutionalize Christianity, it works really, really well. Right? Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you for the opportunity to be able to look back at our own past and understand where we're coming out of. Lord, help us to help, help us to see why our, our 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 culture has viewed things the way we view it, why our church has viewed things the way we view it, and how we as a church can reach out to our culture in ways that truly reflect you. Help us, Lord, to have your heart in Jesus' name. Amen. But yes, it it, it it's really interesting because for the next two hundred years.